Uh, we acknowledge that in a very real sense that everybody is a leader in the sense that we influence people, right? No matter what position you're in or whether you have a position or not, you influence people. And uh, so therefore, by that definition, I believe that we're all leaders, whether it's a, a formal position or informal relationships. Nehemiah actually had both. Nehemiah had the formal position. He was a, a cupbearer for the king, a very honored position. But he also informally had the kind of character that elicited respect and, and he could mobilize people. Now, we know from the circumstance that the walls of Jerusalem protected the city. They had a symbol of protection, of security, of kind of a national pride and of God's promise to the Israelites. And these walls were in disarray. So Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1 prayed this glorious prayer asking God to do something so that these walls could be rebuilt. And he was actually the answer to that prayer. Right? Uh, Nehemiah mobilized people who were desperate for a leader, uh, and in my mind, outside of Jesus, is perhaps one of the greatest displays of, of genuine, godly leadership that we have in the Bible. Back several weeks back, when we looked at some of the things that get in the way that hinder our leadership, I mentioned, just from my own experience, uh, hazards that I have discovered because I did them. Whether it's family, job, church, work, any situation, here are some assumptions that we have to avoid. First is that you can get along on national or natural ability and do what is expedient and comfortable. We noted that influence is not a right. It's something that we earn. Uh, we have to earn the trust of those around us by our example, and then we can lead. We noted in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul said he, he runs the, way, the race in such a way that is deliberate, disciplines himself in order to win. We also noted that you can achieve success without balance. That's a lie. All out pursuit of a goal when you forget about the important relationships in your life, that's a leader on a long walk with nobody following. Then we saw that you can keep everybody happy, especially those who champion dis discontentment, and that is also a lie. There are always going to be folks who are dissatisfied, and if you spend your time trying to chase after those people, the majority of your time, you are going to be wasting much of your time. Now that all those people are a waste of your time, they're not saying they're not worth anything, but as a leader, you are called to mobilize the people who want to follow. And, and so you, you equip and you lead them, and sometimes leaders forget that. The other thing is that to think that no one can do it better than me. That's a lie. Good leaders love to delegate, to equip, to give responsibility to others, to give credit to others, and any healthy organization has a system that will do just that. And lastly, that goodwill and hard work can overcome a lack of of an inner life. There's not a person in here who's led any organization who, or who's a parent or whatever situation you find you're in who hasn't experienced insecurity, who hasn't experienced fear, who hasn't been reluctant, and yet all of these things, 
And, and I'll never forget when it, I first came to realize this, because, you know, you spend all your time, you know, you blame your parents, you blame this experience, you blame that church, you know, you blame everybody. And finally I had to realize, wait a minute, this is stuff going on in my heart that I have to address. And if we expect to endure in being an influencer in the kingdom of God, you have to address those things in your inner life so that we can have good emotional and spiritual health. And working harder, and this is coming from a type A workaholic, working harder does not make up for a lack of the inner life. It doesn't. You, you just crash more extravagantly, okay, when you operate that way. I know. I've had two interventions in my life for my own kids. Family get-togethers. Dad, you're really screwing up here. You're really forgetting about us. And that comes because type A, focused, focus in the sense of tunnel vision and not having a wide view. And so I know from experience that that's just no way to go. So all of us need to remind ourselves, listen, that it's not perfection that we're after here, right? It is not perfection. All of us approach our endeavors with our own issues, our own insecurities. So I'm not, I'm not you know, trying to uh, communicate that we don't have any insecurities and you get rid of them. No, just address them. And with that weakness, allow Christ to turn that into something that he can use. When I am weak, then I'm what? Strong. That means we acknowledge our weaknesses before Christ. And then that's something then that he can turn in and use uh, ministry-wise. And again, I know how debilitating it is to not attend to these things of the heart. And in the end, my task is to acknowledge those humbly before Christ and then allow him to use me anyway. And that just gives him glory for how great he is. Now, many leaders will, will seek to hide their issues, to hide their foibles and their weaknesses. And they believe that the only way that they can lead, the best way to lead is to lead with strength. And that basically means foisting an image, all right? And that is always an ever-present temptation for, for any leader, whether you're a father, you know, mother, boss, pastor, whatever. And I'm certainly not suggesting that you bleed over everybody and share every personal problem. I mean, we can have people around us, can we not, that we can be real with, who are not impressed with us, not impressed by our position or whatever skills we may have. They will get in our grill, and you need people like that. I happen to be married to one, which I'm very appreciative of, and I don't mean that as a joke. I mean that as it helps me, it's good for me, that's, that's a good thing. Usually I believe that that's a good thing. <laughs> but here, here's the deal. We're to always speak truth, right? We're, we're, we're to never present some faux image and never lie about, about who we are. And I can be vulnerable and you can be vulnerable when necessary, um, but as a leader I also realize that I'm not the message. I'm not. That... that that Christ is the message, and my job is to put the, the light upon his glory and, and, and his grace, and I influence much more effectively when I'm honest about those weaknesses, operate in his strength. And so, 
Those are things that, that we recognize are, are, are hindrances. And then we looked to Nehemiah for ways in which leadership was enhanced and how he mobilized people. And these are some of the things that we've already looked at. That prayer is more than an appendage. Nehemiah drew upon the character of God, the promises of God, in order to give him strength and direction. We also saw that we choose to either be distracted or we are determined towards the goal that God has given us. There was great opposition before Nehemiah uh, and with his fellow wall builders. And he did not use that as an excuse, that opposition, for him to basically cower from the calling that God had upon his life. We read this in Nehemiah 2. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And then we read how resolute Nehemiah was in this verse. Let us arise and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. I just love that. We've got a job to do. We're going to strengthen our hands for this work that is ahead of us. He was determined to finish the task that God had for them. We also saw that you need to define the places that you will not go. Define the places that you will not go. Nehemiah had a set of convictions that set up for him boundaries that he would not cross. Now, these were not secondary issues or, or you know, cultural issues that some Christians deal with. These were clear biblical boundaries. We read in Nehemiah 4, 14, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I just love that. I mean, there is a, there is a, a, a determination. There is a line that was drawn. And what Nehemiah did, he addressed things with his people that, that basically he put a stop to. Uh, for instance, they were charging some of his fellow countrymen, charging interest to their own citizens and And it created a great burden for them. And it was like a surcharge on top of taxes. He spoke out against that. He also spoke out about how they were defiling marriage and was raising up a standard, Nehemiah was, about the holiness of God. And the point is this. He was not selling out. He was not selling out for, you know, to be relevant. He was not selling out for some misappropriated idea of, of tolerance or love. Now, we can certainly be tolerant, but we don't throw away the baby with the bathwater and get rid of biblical injunctions. We can be loving. There's a good love to have, but we don't throw out biblical standards as we love. And so he defined the places that he would not go. Fourthly, he developed and utilized every person that was involved. I mean, he had a team of like 150 managers, and then, and then he had the team that built the wall. He was deliberate in placing people on the wall according to their skill or according to the proximity that they were in where they lived uh, close to the wall. And so there was a division of labor divided by these ways, planning and then relationships enough to know where people lived and, and to know what their skills were. So that leaves us then with today, we're going to take a look at these last two principles in mobilizing God's people to do great things. Now again, this is for all of us, right? Because all of us influence. The next one is this. 
that sacrifice, when we mobilize God's people, sacrifice is to be enthusiastically embraced. Many of you maybe saw in the news this week uh, featured one uh, presidential candidate who was suing his own party after his team was caught stealing computer information from another candidate. I mean, who needs to break into a Watergate hotel when you can just do, you know, cyber attack, right? We think, man, things are really bad now, right? Listen, things have always been bad. People have always been corrupt, and they were in Nehemiah's day as well. The public officials preyed upon people with these tax surcharges and using that money for their own use. And in addition, they basically had government goons who went out to make sure that they could collect. Now, this was with their fellow countrymen, mind you. So then we read this. Look at Nehemiah 5. Turn to it. Nehemiah 5, verses 14 through 19. And this is what it says. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Times were rough. So Nehemiah made the choice not to charge basically these 150 middle managers with food allowance like was done before. Now, he wasn't just handing out PBJs. He was giving choice food, oxen, great food, and choice wine. Those are the kinds of staff meetings we want to be at, choice wine and good food, right? Verse 18 says, What motivated him for this? Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Nehemiah understood his culture. He understood what was taking place, and he had a genuine love and respect for his countrymen that kept him from taking advantage any more than what they're already being taken advantage of. I mean, his, his sacrifice to give all that he did came out of a heart of love and compassion. It's not hard to follow a leader who you know cares about you. That's not hard. And it's really not hard to even sacrifice for somebody who asks us to do something when we know that person truly cares about us. Secondly, we read in Nehemiah 5.15, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took 
from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God. Nehemiah understood that it was God who sees the heart. It is God who ultimately rewards. It is God who we are going to be held accountable to. It is God who we have to answer to about how we wield this position and this influence that we have been given. And so Nehemiah was very keen on using that influence for the glory of God and in a way that showed that he truly cared about his people. Listen, every position that you are in, whether it's in an official position or just you have influence because of relationships, family, work, civic life, church, it is a stewardship from God. Now, you may not like your boss. You may not get paid what you think you deserve, but you are still in a stewardship from God. Do you realize that? You, as a son or daughter, how you wield that influence with your other brothers and sisters and with your parents, you are in a stewardship from God. Every position, from a Walmart shift leader to the president, from a sister to a father, from a secretary to a mayor, we are responsible to God for how we use our influence. In chapter 7, we see Nehemiah's influence was reflected in the rest of the leaders. The people had experienced much opposition in the building of the walls and in the building of the temple, which Ezra was intimately acquainted with. There was threats, there was political pressure, there was deceit that swirled around both of these building plans. And when Nehemiah had finished the rebuilding of the walls, there needed to be people that moved from the outlining areas that, that were Jews to move now that the walls were completed, they needed to move from to inside the city to serve as protection now for the city. Now, imagine that. You've got a home in another town and you're being asked by your leader to move. That's, that's not their vocation. That's, you know, they're not getting paid for this. That's a spiritual leader saying, hey, can you imagine me coming up to you and saying, hey, you know, I need you guys to move. You're thinking, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, who do you think you are? And yet that's exactly what Nehemiah was saying, is that we need you to move. And so what they did, they, they basically cast lots, all right, to see if they could get one-tenth of their people. And I guess if you lost then, you know, you were going to have to be the guy to move. But we read this in Nehemiah 11, 1 through 2. Again, great sacrifice. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men 
and willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So, cast lots to get one-tenth, but then something beautiful took place. People were gripped in their hearts by God, and it said, some willingly offered to move, to make that sacrifice, and to live in Jerusalem. Well, really? Willingly offered. The Hebrew word there means to impel, to incite from within. It's another way of saying that God moved in their hearts and they responded. Listen, such a drive, that does not come out of a spiritual vacuum. These were people who were regulars in the worship community. They were challenged by the admonitions of the word of God. Their, their willingness can be attributed to having this spiritual drive because of their relationship with God. And they understood how their sacrifice would benefit their fellow Jews as well and in protecting the city. So it was love for their brothers and sisters and love for God that impelled them to make this. Wow. The servant leader has a conscience that looks to the good of the community and that listens to the Spirit of God. You know, takers may eat well, but givers sleep well. A man came to his pastor and said, I don't know what's wrong with my life, but I don't have Christian joy that I had when I first knew the Lord. It's passed me by. I still live a moral life. I still go to church. But how can I recover that lost radiance in my faith? This pastor said this to him. He said, this is what you should do. Go to the store, buy a big basket full of groceries, and go to an address of a poor family that I will give you. And then when you have given your gift, you sit down with them and find out what they need. Let them know that you are interested in them and that you are their friend. Then lead them in the Lord's prayer before you leave, and then that radiance will come back. Pretty good advice. Pretty good advice. I talked to a man this week who was recounting his former life that was pretty rough. And God graciously snatched him and redeemed him. And as he recounted his conversion, the tears were welling up in his eyes. And and it was just this great appreciation for what God has done. And he was talking about what he wants to do for God as a result. See, I, I think we forget this. We forget maybe where our life would have been without Christ or where we were. And we start feeling pretty good about my, you know, ourselves. And when you forget those kinds of things, that heart of sacrifice has a way of waning, does it not? We'd do well to remember that we don't just give out of excess. We, we willingly and joyfully give of our time, our treasure, our talent, as God prompts us and we trust him then to meet our needs. You don't just get there overnight. 
But you know what? Those who operate this way, there is an exhilaration in giving. I mean, I've always been struck by people who will leave everything they've got and just go somewhere else and minister. You know, and, and leave the... And we've had plenty of people, that missionaries of our, from our own church who leave this life behind and go and live somebody else. And they've got to sell everything they've got in order to go to land. I'm like, wow. I mean, that's, that's sacrifice. It's really not for them. I mean, it is in one sense, but it's like they're compelled. They love doing it. Why? Fear of God, love of others. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to them. You know, as we pass out these winter jackets this uh, past week at, uh, at Weaver, some of Kate's class helped us find the rooms that we needed to go to. You know, the thing, the uh, jackets had the kids' names on them. Um, and uh, one fifth grader who went with me to a particular class uh, and was helping me pass out the clothing, uh, she, she turned to me and she goes, it's really fun to give. <laughs> It's really fun to give, and it really is. The Apostle Paul agrees with her. He said this, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Enriched in every way. Lastly, we have permission to celebrate. You know, it's a common theme in the Old Testament. When God moved in people, when did something really cool, uh, they would maybe create some monument, you know, or stones to commemorate what God had done, right? Uh, And when God does something great in his people, they will also celebrate, worship in a big way. And after the, this wall was completed, we read in Nehemiah 8 that Ezra read the book of the law before the people, and we read this, and Nehemiah opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people, meaning he just stood on a platform, and he opened it, and all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And we read further that this created a time of of national confession of sin after Ezra read from the book of the law. We then read in Nehemiah 12, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, uh, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, with harps, there were, there were choirs set on the wall so that there was an antiphonal chorus going back and, and forth, praising God for how he had moved in finishing this wall. It was a recognition of his provision. And they recognized as they confessed before God, they didn't deserve this. In fact, we know the record tells us that, that Israel was disobedient. God could have rightly judged them. God could have rightly taken them from the face of the earth. And instead, he poured out his grace. He blessed them. He helped them prosper. And so what they did in return were these big, bold celebrations. And there were also personal expressions of renewal. And all of it just flowed out of 
hearts that were cognizant of where they were at, of where they would be without God. And so their hearts are just overflowing with thanksgiving. Then we read in in Nehemiah 12, 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Isn't that great? It was so loud, you could hear it across the valleys. That's amazing. And why? God had them rejoice with great joy. I just have to think, though, there were probably still some in the crowd who found fault with the worship. (laughs) Don't raise or clap your hands. Don't sing so loud. You shouldn't sing that kind of music. Get off that wall. Don't, don't, don't. I've read so many articles, especially on social media, by quoted experts on worship saying how that's not worship, that's not worship, that's what. I'll tell you what worship is. Worship is this, and it's always some particular application, not a biblical principle, it's some particular way that it's practiced. Listen, my point is this. If Christ is our focus, if our hearts are sincere, If if the content, the words are truthful, don't let others put the kibosh on your worship, all right? When our heart is overflowing, God is giving us permission to celebrate. And when we celebrate, we're not proclaiming that we've got it all together. Let's not smugly say, well, you know, those people over here that don't do that, they're not really worshiping. Just let your heart worship and don't worry about what other, other, you know, other people do or don't do in their worship. Just you celebrate. You be responsible for your own heart. Listen, Janet and I today celebrate 35 years of marriage. And by the way, no, no. Well, that's for her, because truly the wedding and the marriage has been an act of charity, and I'm the recipient, all right? And that's, that's the God-honest truth of it, all right? It only proves that she is long-suffering and patient and forgiving. Here's the point. Is the marriage perfect? You know better than that. Do we have it all together? Not by a long shot. We've had to work very hard uh, to have what we have today, all right? But can we not celebrate honestly and eagerly what God has done for us? Can we not recognize God's work? Do you think I got up this morning and I said, Janet, hey, it's been 35 years today, but I am not going to celebrate or give thanks because you know what? You hurt my feelings last week. Wouldn't I be missing the point on our anniversary day? Uh, Yeah. You see, a celebration is for the purpose of honoring someone or an event, right? I mean, an anniversary honors your spouse. Don't let some triviality distract from that. A birthday honors a person. 
Don't let the fact that you don't like the cake get in the way from honoring the person who has their birthday. A retirement honors years of service. Don't let the fact that you don't like the drinks that are being served get in the way of honoring the person, right? Don't get bent out of shape about these other details that don't matter. Likewise, listen, worship is a celebration of who God is and what he has done for us. And to the degree that we understand where we would have been without him, what he has done for us, that's the degree that we have passion in our worship. It's not up to somebody else to give me that passion. Do you think that there were people that were there during this celebration when these walls were completed, that sat on their hands, didn't sing, didn't participate, and faulted the singers because they were too loud? Or the the leader didn't have the appropriate hairdo or clothes? Or the right instruments weren't used? How do you think that would have sounded to Nehemiah if somebody would have come up to him and said, uh, uh, hey, Nehemiah, did did you see the clothes they're wearing here? Or the lighting is too dark, or it's too light, or, I mean, come on. You missed the point, right? The focus and intent of worship, is it not, is the alpha and omega, the perfect lamb of God. And you know what? He may lead us to confession, he may lead us to repentance, or he may lead us to big, bold proclamations of worship. But whatever he does, let's make sure that each of our hearts are unhindered, that we can freely express and celebrate what God has given to us. And see, that is something that each of us are responsible for. Imagine, just imagine, close your eyes, close your eyes. Imagine four or 500 people at Christ Community Church who are eager, expressive worshipers. Imagine four or 500 people at Christ Community Church who are unhindered in their sacrifice. I see that. I see the lives being touched. I see the love being expressed. And I see that glory going to God. And so, Father, I pray that you'll continue to finish what you have started here. And you'll work in our hearts.